Hello and welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops and Detroit Bad Boys, a former D1 Hooper, current high school coach, teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And I'm Amari Sankoff for the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. Amari, I can't do it, but I had someone with a really funny suggestion in my DMs say that one of these times I should just go, hello and welcome, blah, 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 co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon. And just stop right there and then see how you would react. <laughs> and I wanted to do it so bad. And I, I just, I'm not funny enough or cool enough to do it. But I thought it was a really good idea. It would have caught me off guard if you had done that. It would have, I would have just sat here like, it would have been like an awkward silence for like five seconds. Like, did Bryce glitch out? Like, what's going on here? Uh, no, we got, we got to keep the rhythm going. We got to keep the rhythm going. We're 45 episodes in, so. Yeah, no doubt. So before we get going today, I do, we do want to thank everyone for listening, supporting. There's a ton of great Pistons content podcasts out there, and we appreciate all of you that listens to the Pistons Pulse every week. Make sure you're telling your friends about it. And I was looking today, Amari, almost 300 combined ratings between Apple and Spotify. So if you haven't, give us a rating, give us a review, get us over 300. And we wanted to let everybody know that with the holidays coming up, we're staying strong. The Pistons Pulse is going to release the next two Tuesdays. Next week, we're going to have Matt Babcock on. He'll join us to talk Jay Nivey, Jalen Duran, and play a little armchair GM. And the Tuesday after the New Year's, we will be back. Amari and I are going to give our New Year's resolution. So no stops for the Pistons Pulse during the holiday season. We're recording every Tuesday or dropping every Tuesday. Yeah, full steam. So um, definitely check in through the holidays or if you want to spend some family time and take a break, catch up the week after, I'm not going to fault you. You know, it's time to take some time off and unwind. But unwind with the Pistons Post. Introduce this to your family. Give us, give some Pistons Post presents to your family. And we don't have merch yet, so maybe that'll be the 2023 thing. You know, if it happens in 2023. I'm not saying it will for a fact, but uh, invite us into your living room. Uh, have my voice and Bryce's voice. I think we have very mellow Christmassy voices, I think. Like, I think it fits holiday vibe pretty well. So <laughs> go to play that podcast out loud. Get your niece and nephew in it. Uh, let's keep the brand strong through the holidays, everyone. One thing that's a little bit of a downer since the last time we recorded, Omari, and we did not, even though the news came out late Monday evening, we had already recorded the pod. Obviously, it dropped on Tuesday, and we got the Cade Cunningham. The official news, news that we knew, news that we felt like was probably coming, but it wasn't official. Cade Cunningham did opt for the surgery. Since then, he has already had the surgery, is my understanding. Just what insight can you give us? I know there's not a whole lot of updates other than he decided to have the surgery. He's had the surgery, and he's out for for the year. Any other details you can give us, Omari? You know, we first initially reported the news about it likely being a stress fracture. Uh, some of that initial reporting, or, you know, at least for me, you know, in, in included, you know, was that he was going to make the decision that week. And uh, Kate took a little extra time and, you know, talked to doctors, talked to, uh, you know, whoever just to get more information about the process and what it would mean. And, uh, you know, the team still expects that he will be healthy in time uh, for most of the offseason. So it's not expected to cause him to miss most of the summer. Uh, for this season, obviously, it's tough, you know, just because this team was kind of built with the expectation that they'd be able to maybe not win every night, but at least compete. And now Cade's gone, and he was ideally going to be your best player. And uh, I think that kind of lowers the ceiling for this team. Uh, I kind of made it in this point in the story I wrote last week, uh, but you look at the Indiana Pacers and the season they've had where Tyrese Halliburton has made the leap. Like last I checked, he was averaging like 20 and like 11 assists. And, um, you know, Bid Math has been a really solid rookie coming off the bench for them. And 
you've just kind of seen them take an unexpected leap forward. And I think they're having the season that the Pistons could have had if Cade Cunningham stayed healthy. Uh, you just imagine the Pacers without Tyrese Halliburton, and, you know, they're probably where the Pistons are now. So I think that's the – even though I think me and Bryce both didn't necessarily see play in as like a realistic goal for the Pistons, teams do exceed expectations. And, you know, I think with Cade, they had a chance to do that. You know, they had a chance to kind of creep toward 500 and uh, turn over a new leaf. And it's really hard to see that happening now. So, you know, I think just from a season standpoint, maybe it lowers interest for some fans or whatnot. But, but long term, I think the team is still positioned pretty well to make a leap next season. Well, and I don't want to get into too much of this because this does play right into one of my dislikes that I'll have at the end of the episode when we get into our three likes and three dislikes so, so far this season. I think you said it perfectly, Omari. It limits the ceiling, right? I think both of us were wary about this team making the play-in game. But the, I think we both would have said that the ultimate ceiling, if everything goes right, injuries aren't a major factory, things start to click, the rookies are as good as expected, which maybe they have been, I'm sure we'll talk about that as well, that they could have got to, like you said, 500 or the play-in. And yeah, Halliburton's averaging 20 points, four rebounds, just under 11 assists a game. So he's playing great, and by all accounts, Cade would have been doing maybe even more than that, maybe not as many assists, but definitely more rebounds and probably more points. So it, it is disappointing. I do want to ask, do you think it took so long for him to make this decision? Was it solely based on information, just making sure they fully understood what the surgery was going to be? Was there some thoughts of like, we saw him warming up and doing some practice stuff. Was there ever some thoughts that he was going to try it again? Or was this just, let's take our time. We're in no rush. We need to know every single piece of information, hundred percent. I think he knew that he couldn't play, um, you know, when it comes to warm ups. I think, you know, you just talk to people and he's been pretty engaged still in just the day-to-day process uh, with this team. And, you know, I guess clearly, you know, the soreness of the shin wasn't like, you know, to the point where you couldn't walk or anything, right? Like he could still, you know, take layups and, and, and warmups and whatnot, which I think may have signaled. When I signaled, I think it may have confused some people who kind of just see on social media, like, well, if he's going to miss the season, why is he warming up, right? But it wasn't like he, you know, tore his ACL or, uh, you know, anything to that nature. You know, it was a hairline stress fracture. So, you know, I think the injury kind of fell right into that void of he's good enough to, you know, like if it were just like me, like I'm not a pro basketball player, I could walk around and go to work, you know, with like maybe a hairline fracture in my shin, like it won't feel good. But, you know, but when you're talking about playing like live basketball, that's a whole different ordeal. So, um, you know, I think there was some of that with him and then just coming to terms with the, you know, fact that you're going to miss your entire sophomore season, which is also tough. Uh, but I think for the most part, it was mostly just information gathering and, you know, just him just kind of acclimating himself with uh, the process and, you know, of course, rehab and everything that was that's going to be ahead of him over the next, you know, four to six months or so. Is there any more insight to how far back this went? And I realize, like right now, I'm quizzing you as the beat. I'm being I'm being one of those fans that's like, Omari, give us all the information. But you know, I, I feel like we've got some mixed things. I, I do think. At one point, we felt like it was something new. Then it went back to the preseason. And then we've heard maybe it even went back to like his rookie season. Have you got any like for sure information or insight into like how long this thing has been bothering or maybe building up with Cade Cunningham? So I think the only person who knows exactly how long it's been going on is Cade. You know, I think for the Pistons, they were aware of, you know, some soreness, you know, like last season and like over the offseason some. And then it gets to the point where it's a recurring issue and it gets worse. And then it's like, okay, I think this is, you know, I think we need to, you know, take a look and see what's going on here. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think K is probably the only person who knows like the exact time and date, like when this began, you know, but for people for the team, they just know that it started before this season and they just know that it got to the point to where 
uh, you know, like a lot of guys are sore, right? You know, like soreness is not something typically that prevents you from playing basketball. Uh, you know, like, like that's part of the sport. But when it becomes a recurring issue, that's when it kind of sets off red flags of maybe we should make sure that there's not something else going on here. And then for him, it was something else that was going on. So, which I knew the exact date, but, you know, just from, you know, like what Trey said last week and then, you know, just talking to other people behind the scenes, it's been a little vague exactly when that got started. So I think that's where something we have to ask Cade eventually when he has his first media availability. I'm fine with that. Like, I don't know that we're always should be privy to some of this information. It will be interesting if you guys get the opportunity to ask Cade when it started. I know we've talked about this a little bit and then we'll move on to the game on Sunday night. But any thoughts on what this means for Cade long term, what this means for the team long term? Again, we touched on a little bit. I'm not super concerned about what this means for the restoration. I don't think it sets the restoration back a whole year, anything like that, just because he's going to miss the rest of the season. Again, in some ways, it may actually set them up in a better scenario because it puts them at a better chance for Victor Wimbenyama or Scoot Henderson and some other draft prospects that we'll begin to talk about over the next few episodes and definitely into February, March and and on. But I don't think it's a... it's a big deal for Cade because he needs to play basketball games. And there was obviously some development that would have happened, but I'm not worried that it's going to, you know, cut into his long-term upside. This isn't some crazy injury that could derail his career. doesn't seem like, and again, I don't think it hurts the restoration. If anything, it's going to help guys like Killing Hayes get more minutes, Jay Nivey get more minutes on down the line. Do you see it any other way? Am I, am I sugarcoating this too much? I think long term, you still have, you know, the 2023 draft pick. You still have, you know, your 2020 rookie class. And they've all, you know, I think improved in various ways of the season, um, you know, who will either, you know, be extended, you know, the subcoming offseason or be brought into restricted free agency. But bottom line for them is that they'll be a year better next year and you have cap space and all the mechanisms that they have to make a leap next season are still there. Uh, but you kind of test on it. I think the biggest um, thing that kind of hurts you is that you needed to evaluate Kate. You know, you needed to see what he could do in year two. You needed to get a better feel for, is he just a very, very good player? You know, or is he like the franchise guy? You know, I think that that's valuable information to have as you go into the 2023 draft. And maybe you don't have the, the top pick, but you're still picking like three or four or five. And now there's a lot more variance as far as what direction you go in, right? Do we get like a, a never long-term upside guy that may take a few seasons to kind of figure things out. You know, Killing was a long-term upside guy, right? Like maybe you don't want to, you know, wait a couple of years for, you know, a top 10 pick to start to show life again. Uh, there's just a lot of stuff that kind of puts you in a holding pattern, but it doesn't because you have to make these decisions without that information. Um, you know, and then also how does Kate fit next to Killian? How does he fit next to Jade? And all those guys, I know the ball, there's a lot of chemistry stuff they have to figure out. So uh, that's a lot of stuff that have to be pushed to next season. And I think that that hurts. And I think that, we probably won't get a good feel for how much that sets them back until next season begins. But I think overall, um, if you just kind of buy into the idea that talent wins and Ivy gets where he needs to be, Killian gets where he needs to be, you know, Cade still comes in and whether he's franchise guy or, you know, more like, you know, like maybe like Desmond Bain, like really, 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 really good number two, you still have talent to win. And I think that's probably the, the main thing overall. But, you know, for this season, there's a lot of information gathering that kind of gets pushed to later on now and the extent that that hurts to rebuild i think we'll just have to wait to see how everybody looks next season yeah that's a good point while we get to evaluate killian hayes in a larger role we get to evaluate jay nivey we don't get to evaluate those guys next to what is probably the franchise player right now in Cade cunningham and so in that sense it is a little bit frustrating and you have to wait till next season to really see how those guys play together let's talk about the game that happened on sunday 
First half, the Pistons play extremely well, Amari. They offensively were really good. At halftime, KD and Kyrie only had 26 points combined. I say only because of what ended up happening in the second. Even at halftime, I was saying like, hey, if those two end up with 52 total points, that's a win for the Pistons. If you hold those guys to 26 and 26, I think that's a pretty good defensive effort. We know what ends up happening in the second half, but let's just, what did you think about the first half and then move into what ended up happening throughout the game? Yeah, I mean, I thought the first half went... (laughs) You know, it's worse you could possibly hope, considering it's the Brooklyn Nets and they've been, you know, one of the two or three best teams in the NBA, um, you know, in the month of December and even going back into November a little bit. Uh, they've been really good. Uh, so, you know, to take a 19 point lead, I think, uh, toward the end of the first half, uh, you know, it's, it's fantastic. I think that first half probably went better than anybody could have realistically uh, predicted before the game. And some of that was that, you know, Durant and um, Kyrie had 13 points each. So neither of them really popped off. You know, the 13 points and a half is, you know, not not bad or anything. But, you know, obviously those guys were not doing what they were doing in the second half where, <laughs> you know, I think they scored 55 combined points in the second half. And the Pistons only scored 50 points in the second half. And uh, They outscored the Pistons by themselves. Those two yeah. outscored. At one point it was worse. At one point it was really bad, like almost 15 more points than the Pistons' entire team yeah. in the second half. And it still ended up being – like a really close game. Like it kind of came down to the final shots in the end. So the game didn't completely get away from the Pistons, but you know, again, you're up 19. So, you know, to lose a game, you're up 19, I think is, is, is bad uh, regardless of who the opponent is. But uh, you know, offensively, I think the Pistons shot extremely well in the first half, even though they didn't really shoot that well from three, you know, they were hitting shots overall. Uh, I thought they did a good job really throughout the game. Like not even just in the first half and in the game in general of not letting anybody else on Brooklyn's roster get going. Uh, like, yeah, I mean, you know, KD and Kyrie combined for, I think, 81 points. So it doesn't matter as much when they score that many points. But, you know, I think a lot of times you accept that the stars are going to get their buckets when they heat up, not much you can do. So, you know, take everybody else away and then, you know, just allow it to be a shootout. You know, it's probably what a lot of teams try to do in that scenario. And, and that's what they did. And they lost. And, you know, as bad as like that third quarter was, like, honestly, just like watching the game. Uh, the Pistons did come out cold, like they did struggle to hit shots, uh, you know, things that have kind of been on and off issues this season that they need to get better at. Um, you know, at the same time, like Kyrie and KD were just doing some ridiculous stuff at the same time. And, you know, like I know some people were like, well, you know, you bring Killian in quicker and you do this and that. But you know, I don't personally see a lot that they could have done to kind of slow that down. Like they don't. Well, there aren't defensive stoppers who can slow those guys down in general when they're going, but also the Pistons kind of lack those defenders anyway. Like Killian is, I think, a good defender, but, you know, he's not Drew Holiday, right? You know, like I think it's only a handful of guys who can really truly give Kyrie work defensively every single play. So, yeah, just the tide shifted. You know, KD had a 26-point, you know, third quarter. Uh, you know, once the levies kind of broke, it just wasn't a lot that they could do to get back in it. And I think that's a game where not having a go-to guy like Cade really hurts them, where you have a team of two guys who are lighting you up and you only have really one guy every night is going to do that, which is bogey. Yeah, I mean, we talk about it all the time. They had the two best players on the floor, Omari. Yeah. The fact they lost by three points when the other team – has the two best players on the floor and Kevin Durant, who is a top three offensive player in the league, maybe top one, like on nights like last night. How do you expect the Pistons to beat them whenever they don't have either guy like that? The only thing 
I think Coach Casey and the staff could have done is when KD really got it going in the third, I would have loved to see them start to try to trap him then. They did it late in the game, and it actually worked. They got some stops and some steals. And I'm not saying they could have done it all game long because I don't think you can trap KD all game. But, you know, once he had scored 15 or 18 and you could see he just got it going – I would have loved to see, like, let's trap him immediately as he comes across half court, get the ball out of his hands. And I'm not even saying it would have worked because they do have other guys that can knock down shots, right? Seth Curry, Joe Harris, Yuda is like a – somebody told me last night he's like a 70% three-point shooter in the corners. So it's not like it would have automatically worked. I just would have liked to see it. That that was my one little critique. But at the end of the day – the Pistons competed. They didn't shoot well from the three-point line. And the two best players on the floor took over. And you're going to lose a lot of games in the NBA when you don't have the two best players on the floor. And I think with the Pistons, they essentially have to play perfect games to kind of yeah. win a lot of those games, um, which you're not going to do. I mean, the Brooklyn Nets played very, very far from a perfect game. But, you know, when you have the two most talented players on the floor, uh, you get a lot more leeway. And you have, I think, more avenues to kind of make up for that. No, they came out extremely cold and honestly probably should have lost that game. But, you know, again, when you have two of the best one-on-one scorers in the history of the game, I think a lot of that kind of flies out the window. And yeah, like Dwayne Casey has to coach perfect games for the Pistons to win. Uh, you know, and even if he does that, they still may lose. Uh, you know, the Pistons are going to be mistake prone just because they're starting two rookies and have such a young roster. Um, you know, they can't really have cold stretches. They can't go cold for more than two or three minutes. Like they just can't afford to do those things. And, um, we've seen them overcome those limitations, I think, probably more than I would have expected, honestly, you know, through the first 32 games or so. But again, their margin for error is really thin. And I think a lot of those games just shows that they can't afford to go code and they just can't afford to do a lot of the things that better teams can do and still win. They were 48% from the field overall whenever they were 27% from three, Omari. So they shot incredible from two, got to the line 34 times and made 29. That's 85%. Had six more rebounds than the Nets. Took seven care of the more, ball. Seven more offensive rebounds, four more steals, and only had eight turnovers. I think they only had two turnovers in the entire first half. Like you said, the the room, the margin for error is just so small because you don't have Kevin Durant who just goes off for 26 and a quarter. Like Boyan can do it occasionally, right? We've seen him do it once, and that's no knock on Boyan, but that's not who he is in this league. They don't have that guy because Cade Cunningham's not on the floor. Jay Nivey was solid last night, but he still he only had 19 points. Like he's not going to start doing that. He may do that one or two times all season long. They just don't have that guy. And to your point, your margin for error is just so slim. Let's talk about Jay Nivey real quick because he has struggled a little bit. But he had 19 points last night on 11 shots. Some He finally got the monster poster dunk that I feel like he's been searching for in the half court. But the talk of the town is going to be he did not finish the game. And you and I were tweeting back and forth a little bit about this this morning. What what were your thoughts on that as Coach Casey went to Alec Burks for the last three minutes of that game? Yeah, Jaden kind of had a fall. And uh, like he was in some pain. He walked off the floor and uh, he was holding the... Uh... A, a towel to like his lower back, which, you know, I assume there was a cold pack under there. So uh, he was just in some pain and uh, he did the post game interview in the press. He did the post game press conference, I should say, after the game. And he said he was fine. Like it was just sore. And I think that they, you know, just, just took him out because he was in, you know, pain. Uh, you know, and that was basically the, the end of it. And you know what Alec Burks gives you? He said a lot of clutch shots for this team. Um, you know, I think Burks being on this roster has made it easier for the coaching staff to say, you know, like we don't have to like ride the young guys all the way down. Like we just put them in and 
you know, if we just feel like that gives us a better chance to win. And when Jaden got hurt, I think that's what it boiled down to. But, but, but he's fine. It wasn't like a serious injury. He, it, it was serious enough for him to come out the game and like look like it was a serious injury, but he ended up being okay. Okay, so you felt like that was fully a uh, injury or soreness decision, not a how Jaden was playing or Coach Casey thought Burks gave them a better chance to win based off how those guys were playing. It, it was more of like, I need to get Jaden out of the game because he's a little bit sore right now. Yeah, to me, it looked like it was more okay. injury motivated because when they made because the, they only they only took Jaden Ivy out, you know, when they made that sub and uh, you know, I, I believe they were writing the first unit down the the stretch. So I think it was more motivated by the fact that he had that fall and was sore than like uh, it just rotationally for sure. And I missed that whenever I was watching. So like my insight was he took Jaden Ivy out because. Jaden had made a mistake or he was unhappy with him or thought Burks was going to give him the best chance to win. I missed the the injury, which again, you know, to emphasize, doesn't sound like it's something major, but I missed that. So that's good insight for me as well, because I, I did not see that whenever I was watching live. I, I want to talk about the fellow rookie, Jalen Duran, who has been a monster, um, especially since being inserted into the starting lineup. I put his rebounding stats the last six games, six straight games with double digit rebounds. We know he's crushing the offensive boards like at an elite level almost already as a 19-year-old. And defensive rebounds, one area where I did have concern, you can call me crazy, go back and watch the Summer League film, watch his film in, in at college at Memphis. It was legitimately something that you could be worried about. And to his credit, he's gotten better at it already. He still misses some box outs. But this man has been a menace on the boards. I thought he was extremely active last night, Omari. He, he shows his passing flashes. He got a steal, like a Jose Alvarado steal, and then Eurostep dunk. Uh, what, what can you say about Jalen Duran right now? Yeah, I mean, I think he's becoming more and more confident. Uh, I'd actually uh, talk to him for like, you know, 10 or 15 minutes one-on-one uh, after Saturday's practice. And, you know, it's funny because he is very mature for like being 19, and it kind of made me laugh and I was talking to him because he – uh, basically like straight up said like it's a good and a bad thing but i take things personally and you take it personally that people kind of were talking about him playing for the cruise and like he's 18 and this and that coming into the Love season it. uh because he's like uh like one thing he said he's i don't want it to ever be like we have to snow walk uh jalen right like he wants to always be ready to go and uh, you know he's worked really hard to get to that point and you know i think we're seeing just how much he's improved since summer league i mean just to the spend of the last you know five six months uh he's doing a lot of stuff we didn't see before. Like, I remember we were talking about his rebounding wasn't the strongest in Las Vegas, and now he's, like, to me, very clearly the best rebounder on the roster and is slowly, slowly making the case that he might already be one of the better rebounders in the entire NBA. Uh, when you look at the fact he's had a, at least 11 and six straight games, the offensive rebounding numbers have been strong pretty much since the season started, and he's figuring things out at a pretty quick pace. I like some of the passes he had last night. Like, he had a perfectly placed outlet pass for, like, a, a Jordan oh, yeah. dunk. Um, like you mentioned the Euro and the like Alvarado, it's like, he's just doing a lot of stuff that uh, like, I think he had the potential to do, but with a guy that young, you don't know exactly how quickly they're going to figure it out. And his learning curve, I think has been pretty fast so far. You know, people always say, oh, these NBA athletes, they don't pay attention to what anybody's saying. They don't need this extra motivation. And like, you continually hear them talk about, oh, I, it was the Patrick Mahomes one. And sorry to talk about the Chiefs because I know the Lions are balling <laughs> right now. So Lions fans, I, I see you. I see the Detroit Lions doing big things. Taking What is it? Taking people's kneecaps? Is that what they do? Yeah. Uh, with the, <laughs> but they're playing great. And I, I would love a Chiefs-Lions Super Bowl. But 
the PFF had Mahomes, I don't know, some bad rating or whatever. And I was listening to a podcast and they were like, oh no, Mahomes doesn't pay attention to that stuff. Two days later in his press conference, he literally mentions how they had graded one of his throws. I'm like, no, these guys are petty in that way. We all, I was that way. And I, listen, I was nowhere near to the level of players we're talking about, but you, you do search for that motivation. People tell you, you can't bam, I'm spending 30 minutes extra in the gym. People tell you, you can't make that shot. Bam. I'm working on that all summer long. Like that's, that's how a lot of guys do, you know, work. That's how they are wired. And so it's interesting. I love when we get that type of insight. Did you also happen to see He's what he said about Demonis Sabonis and King's Twitter did not take to that very <laughs> <Yeah>. well. <laughs> yeah, they were like, uh, I forget what the exact question was, but he was basically. How hard is it to, to guard Demonis? And he said, not that hard. Not that hard. No, he he takes that stuff. He does take that stuff personally. And I don't think that I'll say that I didn't realize that early on. But the more that I've talked to him and you know talked to him Saturday and just over the course of the last six months, you know, I realized that uh, he really is a little bit of a, a, a prideful person that he doesn't. I don't think he sees himself as like a rookie or like the youngest player or any of that. Like that stuff that we think because we, you know, we covered the NBA, right? Like, you know, we understand that inherently guys that young tend to have those issues. So it's not, you know, we're not counting out Jen and Darren specifically. We're just using trends from guys his age and what they go through. And he's like, absolutely not. I'm Jalen Duran. Okay. <laughs> like I don't, I don't do with those things. Like that's, you know, like that's his motivator, right? Like he wants to prove people wrong and, you know, it's paying off for the business so far. I love it. So we got to go to a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about his front court mate, Isaiah Stewart, how he's looked playing at the four, and then also take a little bit of a look into the NBA standings where the Detroit Pistons currently sit. Take a listen to this. So this sign that I have says, on today's episode of America, guns have more rights than women. That's a clip from On the Line, a weekly podcast produced by the Detroit Free Press. I'm the host, Carrie Jr. II, and you're getting a glimpse into the types of stories we cover, the latest in news, culture, and everyday life. We're sifting through the news to give you what's important and hearing what you've got to say about it. There was this huge disinvestment in the city of Detroit, and now, all of a sudden, it's cool to be here, so now you're going to come and take what we got. So check out On the Line every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. We are back with segment two, and we are going to dive into... Uh, the progress of a player that I think we were both pretty high on coming into the season, but I think it's also fair to say that he has exceeded our expectations and probably most expectations. Uh, Isaiah Stewart, you know, who is arguably about the best shooter on the team right now, certainly <laughs> top three or four. Uh, I think I predicted him shooting what like thirty two or thirty three percent this season, and he's, we were way under. We were like way under because he's been like a forty five percent shooter for most of the season, and he, like he started off really cold. So I think he's only shooting around four of twenty two. Amari four of twenty two. I think it was the first five games, and then since then it's got to be close to fifty percent, forty five to fifty percent from three. Yeah, and he's at uh, about thirty nine percent now. So he's just been trending up and up and up. Uh, Bryce, just what's sort of impressed you most about this transformation, especially for a guy who didn't have a track record of shooting threes until he got into the NBA. Yeah, I mean, as much as we were under what Jay Nivey's numbers are probably going to end up being, and we were under on Jalen Duran, I went back and looked, and I know we'll do this eventually, officially, Amari. We were actually way under on Isaiah Stewart's numbers this season as well, especially the points. You know, he's averaging 12 points a game, so you talk about improvement, almost four more points per game. 
the field goal percentage is a little down, but the three-point percentage on four attempts a game, that that's maybe more impressive, Omari, is what he had a game where he shot nine threes. Yeah, he was five and nine against the Knicks and the end of November. Like, I never thought he would shoot that many, let alone make five of them. And I don't care what type of the game those are coming in at times. It just, he looks so confident. I was watching some the other night. It wasn't the Brooklyn game. It may have been Sacramento. And I was like, he's just catching and shooting like it's his job. It's like what he's always done. He's doing the no dip three, like catching it high, keeping it high. The, the progression has just happened so much faster than I thought. He's missed some shots, but then he's came back and made them. So he's played through some slumps. Like it's just been really impressive. And uh, I want to give you a chance to talk about that before we move on to the other aspect of his perimeter game that's been impressive as well. I mean, you look at the way he shoots it, and I think if you started watching Isaiah Stewart for the first time this season, you would not think that this was his first time he ever was a volume three-point shooter. And I think a lot of that, and you know, I've written about it you know, over the last two years and we talked about it on here, but he's put a lot of work into that shot behind the scenes. Like I've watched Isaiah Stewart take threes after practice uh, since we were able to get back into the gym. Like my first year was COVID obviously. So, you know, we weren't going to the practice facility, but you know, since last season, like I've seen this man take a lot of threes behind the scenes and that's been a very, very front forward part of his development behind the scenes, even if they didn't always allow him to do it during games. So, um, you know, we, we talked to, to him about it. Uh, if he kind of said like my confidence just comes from the fact that I've been knocking him down in practice for like a long time. And that's finally translating over to the game. So for a lot of players, everybody works at their shooting, right? Like there's a lot of guys who work on their shooting and it just never comes around. Uh, like a lot of bigs work on their shooting and it never comes around or it may not come around to like year seven or eight, like Brick Lopez didn't start doing it until he was very, very deep into his career. And it's kind of led to a whole second arc for him. As a player, because when I was a kid, you know, I'm like a teenager watching basketball, Brick Lopez was not the three and D center, right? He was the old school interior post guy who was like, okay, defensively, and he completely transformed his game. So, you know, for Isaiah Stewart to be doing this stuff in year three, I think really bodes well for his development, because now it's like, well, if he can figure out shooting threes as quickly, like what else could he add to his game? And we're going to kind of get into that now because he is flashing some other power forward skills that we didn't see as much previously. Yeah, Omari, like I don't want to gloss over the three point shooting, but how many times a game have we seen him attack closeouts now? And he's making passes. It was a couple games ago. I ended up not tweeting it out, but I wanted to. He had like three one more passes. So he's like in the weak side corner. He gets a drive and a kick out and he immediately catches and makes the one more pass to Killian or Boyan or whoever it is. Just that ball movement stuff, being that connector piece is huge as well. The overall package of him playing on the perimeter is so much further along than I thought. I thought we would see him make 33 to 35% from three on three attempts a game this year. And I was going to count that as a success. He's making, what did we say, 39% on 4.2 attempts right now. I didn't even think we would see the off the dribble stuff, maybe at all this year, maybe one time a game every three games. We're seeing it three times a game every game. Like that's, that's huge. And the thing with Stewart is it's not always the most like aesthetically pleasing move to the basket. Like sometimes it turns into bully ball, but I don't care. Like at the end of the day, does the ball go in the basket? Does he make the pass where it needs to go? And if it does, that's all that matters. So that improvement as well has been huge. And I think that's one times I, I get frustrated sometimes with the fan base. It's like, well, they need to just get better at this. I'm like, it's okay to work on multiple aspects of your game at once. And I feel like Isaiah Stewart's doing that. I think we saw like flashes of his dribble drive game in the past. Like I remember when they played the Golden State Warriors last January, 
like I think in the first quarter, like he had two straight possessions where uh, he just caught the defender uh, sleeping and he was able to blow past him and kind of finish at the rim. Uh, I think one of those was like a Euro. Like we've seen it in bits and pieces, but we're seeing those flashes a little bit more now. And I actually asked Isaiah last week if that's something he's he's worked on. Like uh, we know the shooting has been something that's been coming for a while, but like what happens after you establish yourself as a shooter, right? Defenders close it out and you're looking at the next pass or you're driving and then you have all these decisions you have to make. Is that something that he's worked on behind the scenes as well? And he said, no, like that's actually a lot of that's just like game flow stuff. So there's still a lot of skill work that he has not done behind the scenes that he could still show during games. So I think I am, I always bought into his upside as a power forward because I thought it just made sense. And, um, you know, like he was always pretty good for mid range in college and at the line. And you just see sort of an outline of him being a good perimeter player in the NBA. Uh, even if he's not Draymond, like just a guy that can knock down shots, defend, like do the basic power forward stuff. That's really valuable in the playoffs and when you're playing small. But, you know, if he's already doing some of this dribble drive stuff and, you know, looking at the next pass and that's not stuff he explicitly worked on in drills. Now it's like, okay, now it's play development plan next year. is like, well, now I can shoot. So like, what could I do after this? And his footwork getting to the rim is pretty good. I think he's got some work to do as a, a, a dribbler. If he can't get that initial separation, you kind of see him get lost sometimes or he kind of shuffles his feet and he travels and there's still some things he could clean up. But I think he is, improving pretty rapidly and I think it's something as a perimeter player is probably higher than we probably would have guessed this time last year that's incredible insight if he hasn't been working on some of that stuff that's I can't imagine where it's gonna go because again a, a few times a game he's getting to the rim he's attacking those closeouts so if if he works on even one or two moves you know he gets in there he gets cut off okay now I can go to a spin or I can go to an up and under whatever it is and we saw early in his rookie season he had some post moves well now he can turn a dribble drive into a post up especially depending on who the defender is I think the three-point shooting can develop even more in terms of the type of shots you know he's getting a lot of just catch and shoots right now you know, the pick and pop game. Like, I think that's where he can be deadly. You put Jalen Dern in the, in the dunker spot and you pick and pop with Isaiah Stewart, catch and shoot it. They close out attack. And then if he could throw a lob or a dump off to Jalen Dern, that would be huge. So it's, I'm really excited. I think you, listeners can probably tell by the, the tone in my voice and the <laughs> pace of my voice that I'm really excited because you said he's just a perfect fit at the four. It hasn't, caused spacing issues offensively, Amari. And I think that's what everybody was worried about with the Stu-Durin pairing, right? I haven't noticed it. I don't know if you have. The offense still seems to flow fine. Like, obviously, there's complete, you know, roster issues with the offense at times. But it's not like the lane's always clogged with those two. And then defensively, they're grabbing a ton of boards. We talked about Duran earlier. Isaiah's averaging essentially the same amount of rebounds as he has in the past, but now he's doing it from the four position instead of the five. And defensively, the upside of those two is insane. So I, I think this is a huge development. Like, I just don't think you can understate how big it is to have this versatile of a big man on your roster. I agree 100%. And I think with Duran uh, being that vertical threat at the rim, um, and that was also part of the reason why they started Jalen Duran. It wasn't just like Jalen's played really well. Like, I think he's really, you know, thrived as a, a starter so far. But it was also the fit with Isaiah Stewart. You know, Dwayne talked about Jalen has a very defined role as a rim runner, uh, you know, like vertical threat. And that allows Isaiah to say, okay, like, no, I'm the perimeter guy. And I think with Marvin Bagley, you know, I think that Bagley and Isaiah, uh, because they're both trying to do similar things on offense, there was just a lot more 
decision making they have to do to like not get in each other's way, essentially. And Jed and Duran and Isaiah Stewart don't have to do that. I think we've seen Bagley kind of mess with the second unit a bit better as well because he can just get the ball and he can just go to work, right? Like he's not thinking about anybody else. He can just do what he does, which is, you know, be a pretty good interior scorer. Um, so yeah, I think I think a big key for Isaiah Stewart and a thing that I haven't seen as much is him developing that high low game with Jalen Duran. And I think we've seen you know, Isaiah tried to get that going in some ways, but uh, that passing vision is something he's definitely got to work on for sure. You know, where, all right, like you're driving, like, you know, can you do those dump off passes or can you throw laps to, you know, Duran and like how far could that chemistry go? Like, I think the early signs are good, but, you know, I think from Isaiah's standpoint, for that to be maximized, he's going to have to make a lot of strides as, as a playmaker going forward. He had one actually on Sunday night against the Nets. Jalen Duran went down, got early or late transition, I guess, post position, and it turned into the defender fronting him. And Isaiah Stewart actually made a nice pass over the defender to Duran. You know, not one that a lot of people probably noticed because the Nets ended up getting called for a foul trying to defend it. It didn't end up with like a Duran dunk. But I, I believe in Isaiah Stewart, man. I, I think as our listeners know, we're big Isaiah Stewart believers here. And and again, I think the organization really believes in him just the little bit I get to be around the team whenever I get credentialed get to come to the games I just get the vibe like yes they believe in everybody but you can tell that Isaiah Stewart is just a major component of that organization I want to put you on the spot a little bit Omari so Stu has played 25 games so essentially we'll call it a third of the way he's made 43 pointers so far whenever we're sitting here at the end of the season how many three pointers has Isaiah Stewart made He's at 40 right now, and we're essentially a third of the way. Yeah, I think he'll probably end up around 100, 110. Um, you know, so he started off, uh, I think, unsustainably cold from three because a lot of his attempts were, like, kind of going halfway down and out. And you just see the way he shoots him in the arc, like, eventually he's going to start knocking them down. But now since that cold start, you know, he's been, like, red hot from three. And I also think that's going to come down a little bit. You know, so I think he'll probably settle in around, like, 37%, which I think is – phenomenal like way better than a lot of people would have guessed for his first season and you know somebody plays the rest of the year like yeah he's on pace for you know like around um 120 or so when they played 32 so you got 32 66 and you have 80 i think he'll hover around 100 made threes this season like i think that kind of feels like the right number accounting for any other coach streaks or missed games or whatever it may be i think he'll be around the neighborhood of 100 made threes Wes, put me of the over 120 made threes for Isaiah Stewart this year. Mark it down somewhere, hold me to it, and we'll check back in. Uh, but before we take another quick break, Amari, one thing we do want to start doing at this point, you know, 32 games into the season for the Pistons, who have played seemingly a ton of games already because of that France trip that's coming up eventually. Let, let's do a standings check-in. We, we just want to do that every episode, Amari, now, just for the listeners to know. So right now the Pistons are 8-24. and 24. They're 14th in the East. Um, essentially the same, they're, they're, the Hornets aren't any games back, but the Hornets are seven and 23. So they played two less games. Their win percentage is less. So they have the second worst record in the NBA percentage wise, just ahead of the Charlotte Hornets, the Orlando magic, who I believe have won six straight or something crazy, um, are the 13th seed in the East at 11 and 20. Is this about where you expected this team to be? I know this is kind of what we thought with the injuries. It may even be a little bit better than we thought. What, what do you think 
thoughts on where the Pistons stand right now in the standings, what that means going forward, and just maybe the standings overall in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, before the year, I had the Pistons finishing 14th in the East, and I figured even the Charlotte Hornets or the Orlando Magic would be worse than them. And, uh, you know, and I'm sure people can put up receipts, but I also said I had a hunch that Orlando could be a little bit better just because you kind of look at that roster and it's like, you know, they've got some guys, right? And, you know, and I think Pistons losing Cade kind of changed sort of the math there. Like, I think the Pistons had Cade, just seeing how the team has competed. Like, I really do think they'd be around close to, like, 12 wins right now. Like, I think they'd probably have the Magic's record if they still had Cade, which is not a playoff team, but also you're in double digits right now. So I would say they're probably right about where I expect them to be. Like, I know Orlando got Markel Fultz back recently, and he's been playing really, really well. So, yeah, Fultz playing well, former number one pick. You have Van Carroll playing really well, number one pick. Uh, Franz. Franz, who's been, you know, phenomenal. Uh, Bobo. Bobo has been phenomenal. It's a tough spot for Pistons fans right there, though. Yeah, tough. Yeah, no, I'm sure that, you know, there's some some Pistons fans. I remember when the Pistons first did that Bobo trade, and then there was, like, a Bobo fan account that, like, followed me. And I'm always curious about these fan accounts. Like, who are these people that just solely run accounts based on, like, fandom for a player? Even, though, like, f- somewhat more. I want to say Bobo is obscure. Like, he's Manute Bo's son. And, you know, he was, like, a big star going into college and whatnot. But I'm just always impressed by the dedication by some fans to keep those accounts going for so long. And I know I know Bobo fan accounts having the time of, the time of their life right now. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, eight and, you know, and 24, like, to me, that – Seems about right for the team that doesn't have Cade, and you know, we're still probably going to be toward the bottom of the East. Like they're pretty much in the same category as like the San Antonio Spurs and the Houston Rockets, and uh, like a touch better than the Charlotte Hornets. And you know, those rankings will be jumbled up in like the next month, I'm sure. But to me, that sounds about right. The Bull Bull trade, that was probably the most disheartening breakdown I ever did, Omari. They traded for Bull Bull. I immediately went to the film. Like, I got a breakdown in an article out the next day, and then it was like, you know, a day later, all of a sudden, the trade doesn't go through. Like, we barely got the article out before the trade was nullified. I will say this. I'm so glad... Rodney Magruder stayed with the Pistons because he's like the one guy on the team that whenever I show up to these games, I like get to like talk to. Um, There's kind of a long roundabout connection I have to Rodney Magruder, not even me, just the town I live in. Rodney Magruder's actually been to little old Lake in Kansas and he played at K-State for those of you that don't know. So whenever I am out there before games and stuff, I get to, you know, chat it up just a little bit with Rodney. So I do appreciate that, the fact that Rodney's still on the team. Um, just some other look at the standings. The Pacers better than what we thought, Omari. They're 15 and 16. We touched on that earlier. I want to talk just real quick, and then we'll move back into the Pistons and go to break. The Chicago Bulls. And I will say, like, to take my victory lap, this was a team that I pinpointed on multiple podcasts when talking about Eastern Conference preview. That was like, this is a team that could end up struggling and blowing it up. And I'm pretty sure they had an awful loss last night. Yeah, 126 to 150 to the Minnesota Timberwolves. They've lost four straight. I don't know that it does anything with the Pistons, but this may be a team that ends up selling and going full tank mode. Yeah, they appear to be uh, trending that way. And even when they initially kind of put that roster together, like it's like, okay, you have talent up front with Vooch and uh, DeMar DeRozan. And, uh, and it's like you accelerate that timeline and, you know, they're good basically for the first 50 games last season and then, uh, like Lonzo gets hurt and Caruso gets hurt and you kind of see that kind of fall off. But to me, that is an example of like what happens when 
uh, you, like you ever get impatient or you just don't build a team the right way, you know, because you kind of get like that thrill of like winning for a bit and then reality kind of sets in and you've got some severe death deficiencies and, you know, your talented guys just don't quite mesh the way you need them to. Like none of those guys play defense. Uh, and then, you know, you kind of come without the fact that the rest of the NBA is talented and you know, you're, you're sort of like in a bad spot. You know, and I know people kind of get frustrated, you know, when the Pistons are losing and, you know, maybe I'm not, you know, going like squirt surf on the team or whatever. But, you know, like that's just kind of how the NBA goes. Like, you know, you have to pick a way to build and you ever go to go the long way and invest in your guys and take a lot of lumps along the way. Or, uh, you know, you do what the Bulls did and you get some players in who are older and want to win now and you win for a bit and then for every reason it just kind of falls apart. So, yeah, they do look like sellers at the deadline. They're 11 and 18. Uh, they're not going to turn it around. Uh, yeah, I mean, ideally, you probably capitalize on those guys' value while you still can. Build it the, the right way, even if it takes a little bit longer, and hopefully that's what Troy Reaver's doing with the restoration. We're going to go to a short break, and then we'll finish off the episode with three likes and three dislikes from Amari and I through the first 32 games of the season. All right, hey, Carlos, just a quick idea. How about if I say, hey, this is Sean Windsor, and you say, hey, this is Carlos Mars, and I'll go, and then we'll go back. You want, you want to try that? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. You ready? Yep. Hey, this is Sean Windsor. And this is Carlos Menares. And we are the team behind Free Press Sports with Carlos and Sean, where we are going to talk about, you guessed it, sports, but lots of other stuff. Like what, Carlos? Oh, we're going to talk about your favorite subject, Sean, food. Um, probably more food. Arts, culture, sports, TV, movies, you name it. If it's happened in Detroit, we're going to talk about it. And sometimes we're going to have guests in who obviously know a lot more than we do about just about everything. But we're going to have some free press journalists to talk about big stories, folks from the sports world. We're going to be out every Thursday. You can find this podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts. We hope you'll join us. We are back with segment three, uh, where we're just going to break down three things we like and three things we dislike. Um, you know, Bryce very helpfully put his on the outline, and I did not, so mine will probably be a surprise to Bryce. But Bryce, I will let you lead off um, with something we kind of talked about already, but we can certainly talk about some more. Let's start with the positives. Three things I like, and the first one is the Isaiah Stewart, Jalen Duran front court. Stewart's transition to playing the four, Duran's transition into the starting lineup. Again, we've talked about this at length already today. We don't need to dive into it super deep again. Again, like I was wrong about the G League stuff. My main motivation for that was I wanted to make sure Jalen Duran was getting playing time and usage and being on the floor. You know, looking at the roster at that time, I think KO was still on the roster. Plus, you know, we didn't know that Nerlens Noel was only going to be a break glass option. Again, he's been better than I thought he was going to be as a rookie. You wouldn't have found somebody who was higher on his long-term upside and ceiling than me. But obviously, there are people that were higher on his short-term, you know, ability to play right away. So I- I'm excited. I love it. I can admit when I'm wrong, and that's the great thing about just being a fan is I can admit when I'm wrong and then just be excited that I was wrong because it's been a positive outcome. So, again, we don't have to sit on this one for very long, Amari, but that's definitely one of my biggest likes so far is is seeing that long-term front court playing together and working, like truly working and being successful together on the court. This kind of ties into, I think, something else we're going to talk about, but I just like that Alec Burks has, I think, transformed the team in a lot of ways. He really has. And I'm going to, uh, you know, talk to the team at practice today. We're recording on Monday, by the way, so I'm going to talk to 
the winter practice about this today because I looked it up last night after the game. Um, and I'm going to probably write about it too. So look out for that on Freep.com on Tuesday. But the Pistons bench, um, and this is actually two of my likes. It's tied into two, so I'm not going to cut two birds and one stone here. Alec Burks being an instant offense guy off of the bench, which he has been, and that's something the Pistons have not often had. <laughs> you know, if you look at the last five, six years, it's just a guy can come off the bench and immediately give you buckets, and he's been good at that. But also, the Pistons bench has scored the most points of any bench in the NBA since November 11th. And November 11th is the day that Alec Burks made his debut. But some of that is also that Marvin Bagley made his debut, I think, on the 14th. And those are, you know, like two guys who can just get you a bucket. And Bagley was in the starting lineup and they got moved to the bench. But, you know, Bagley coming back, moves Sadiq to the bench. And now, you know, you have Bagley off the bench. So basically, the bench got fortified from, you know, basically no guys could come off the bench and give you instant buckets to three guys who could do it. And uh, since November 11th, Detroit's bench has 930 points. And that is the highest scoring bench in the NBA for basically five weeks now. I love it, man. And just to plug my own stuff, I actually did. Man, we're always in line. I feel like we've got some real good chemistry and vibes going. I just did an Alec Burks breakdown over at DBB. So go check that out. I broke down how he's getting his buckets. You tweet about it all the time. This man, his, this man getting foul calls in the mid-range jump shot game is incredible. I don't, I, I, I haven't found the stat, Omari. Maybe you found it for the article, but he's got to be one of the best in the league at doing it. But yeah, the second unit offense has just been incredible. And, you know, some lots of times it's him and and Bay, but then if it's not those two, it's Bagley and Knox. I, I mean, I, we're not going to get to Kevin Knox, but maybe we can set on that real quick right here. Like he's been really good, and it hasn't just been scoring the basketball. I think he's been rebounding the basketball. He's been defending halfway decent. He gets some blocks here and there. I really like what we've seen from Kevin Knox, and and that comes from one of the biggest Isaiah Livers fans. Real quick. Isaiah Livers time frame. Uh yeah, just the injuries with this team, man. Like Isaiah Livers obviously with his with his shoulder, uh, you know, is gonna miss the next couple couple weeks. So that's another guy who could come off the bench and um kind of give you some buckets. And uh yeah, again, like this team just hasn't been fully healthy all year, but yeah, just love what the bench has been doing uh basically since November eleventh. All right. So my second one kind of plays into this a little bit. So we'll stay there. And I just put the amount of guys playing well offensively. We we know the defense hasn't been very good. I will touch on that here when we get to the dislikes. But Killian Hayes essentially having, not essentially, having a career year offensively and the best stretch of basketball we've ever seen from him in the NBA, shooting the ball well. Jay Nivey, even though he had a rough stretch for about six games recently, overall, he's at least been better than I expected to, and maybe my expectations were too low. Boyan, career year. We touched on Stu. We've touched on Duran. We just talked about Alec Burks, who is having a career year or close to it in many ways. And then again, Kevin Knox. Like, that's multiple guys having career years offensively and I know like Boyan's in a bigger role than maybe what he's had anywhere else but that is impressive I I think the only guys you could question that I don't want to say they've gotten worse but haven't necessarily made a jump is Sadiq Bey he's made a jump inside the arc just you know his three-point shooting hasn't been very good and I feel like Marvin Bagley the third has just kind of been stagnant or about the same obviously we haven't seen a whole lot of Hamadou Diallo recently so one of my likes is just offensively specifically looking offensively the team is better this year they're shooting better from three they're scoring more points and scoring more points than I thought they were going to and that has to do with a lot of individual improvement yeah and you kind of touched on it but I will say Obviously, you like to see, you know, Killian do what he's, you know, been doing over the last four or five weeks or so. But just I think the patience the coaching staff had with him uh, kind of deserves a shout out as well. 
because uh, he did start the season horrifically bad. You know, I don't think anybody's disagreeing with that. Um, you know, but then you kind of have talk of um, not from the business necessarily, but in general, just what do you do? Like, do you limit his role more? Do you bench him? Do you move him down to the G League? I think we asked Wayne about that uh, during the availability early on in the season. And, you know, just how quickly that conversation changed. And, you know, of course, Kate getting hurt kind of factored into that as well. They made a point to not mess with his confidence. They were like, you know, we're going to continue to give him time to, you know, play and figure things out. And we're not going to do anything to signal to him that we're, we're losing faith in him. And it did pay off. So, you know, I think that's an example of, you know, a decision that is like a dice roll, right? Like, you don't know if it'll work or not. And, you know, maybe it creates frustration because people are like, well, uh, you know, somebody's not playing well and you're trying to win. You need to sit them, like, you know, pull the plug, stop developing, yada, yada. And they didn't do that. They kind of stuck with it and ended up working out. So, uh, yeah, you know, kudos to Killian for figuring things out. And, like, I think kudos to the coaching staff, too, for, you know, sticking to their plan with him and just allowing Killian to figure things out at his own pace. All right, Amari, you gave us two your first time, so we each have one left. What is your final like from the first 32 games? Uh, if I had to throw a third one out, um, you know, just like a different one, I would say that uh, even though Sadiq hasn't shot the ball well, I do like that his interior game has been a lot more fluid and, um, you know, I think a lot more efficient as well compared to last season. Uh, like that outside shot has not been falling, but, uh, you know, just the way he's been able to maneuver inside, like I think the physicality plays with getting to the rim at times, like he's definitely made a leap forward in that area. And it hasn't really reflected in like the stat sheet. Like I think on paper, he's probably having an overall worse offensive season than last year, but there have been some signs of growth, like getting to the line, uh, playing inside, more finding other ways to get buckets when your shot's not falling. And uh, he has made a leap forward in that aspect, even if, um, you know, I think the outside jumper still needs to come along as well. Yeah, the, the points per game is down. The field goal percentage overall is up, especially when you consider how poorly he's shooting from the three-point line. Free throw attempts are up. He's shooting better from the free throw line. So, And his minutes are actually down, you know, and I think he's been asked to play different roles. You know, he went to the bench and then there was an injury, so he started a couple games, I think. Now back to the bench, and we've talked about the bench scoring from Burks and Bagley and other guys. So I think he's still navigating his way. My final like, Amari, is I'm still very high on the trajectory of this organization, and we touched on it a little bit. You kind of went through it. There's a lot of young talent. There's veteran talent if you want to keep it on good contracts or if you want to utilize those guys as assets, you can utilize them as assets. And then they go into the offseason, and we're going to talk about this in more depth next week with Matt Bobcock, is there's cap space and a high draft pick. So I just think this organization is still in a really good place. I know there's way more losing than what people wanted, and there was a lot of expectations you know, coming into this season, even two seasons ago when Cade got drafted, and, and that was the season I learned my lesson on how long this was going to take. But I really think you're going to start to see this, you know, injuries willing next season. You're going to see this organization really start to make strides. And I think this is a huge offseason for Troy Weaver. There's a lot of big decisions coming, starting with the 2020 draft class and their extensions, the draft pick, offseason moves, those type of things. But I think they're in a place where they can really start to, to incline at the right pace. Like you said earlier, like with the Bulls, you don't want to rush it. But I'm still very high on the long-term upside of this organization and how things are going. You know, I think they still have other goals in front of them. Uh, you know, there's they're positioned pretty well. You know, and I made this comparison before, but you look at the Atlanta Hawks, you know, a couple of years ago, where you know Trey Young was you know starting to mature into the player he is now, and they had a lot of cap space, and they went out and got some players who could you know, like play, like they got Gallo, and they traded for Clint Capella, and just did these things to compete. 
And they've been a little up, up and down since, but they did get to the Eastern Conference Finals that next year. And uh, like I think the Pistons really are arranged in a way that can allow them to really truly compete next year and not just, you know, compete to compete, but com- compete to win and actually have a winning record. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they're still on the right track. You know, I think the season's probably going to continue to, uh, you know, be rough. And I can already tell, like, a lot of people are kind of growing impatient <laughs> and, like, tuning out, which is going to tie into one of my dislikes. But, you know, I think long term, you definitely do s- still see that this franchise has some things they can do to turn things around pretty quickly. Let's get right to them. Um, start off with that one, Omari. If you have one that goes and flows right into that, we, we do have to get to our dislikes. We don't like to be too negative on this pod, but we got to keep it real. So three dislikes from each of us. Give us your first one. Yeah, I would say my first dislike is just really it's kind of two two things into one. I think that, uh, you know, like the cave injury kind of lowered the stakes for the season, you know, which I think, uh, you know, like just from like a beat writing standpoint, like you want naturally to cover a team that people are interested in. And you could just you know, I've seen a noticeable shift kind of from the beginning of the season until now where a lot of people have just clearly kind of like checked out on it. And I think even as you know, like somebody likes watching basketball and whatnot, like, you know, like you're watching a, a lot of losing for the third year in a row and they're, you know, like not having Cade there that's kind of robbed the season of a lot of the stakes and I think the intrigue that it would have otherwise. And I think that ties into one of your dislikes too. You know, I think that the franchise, like I said earlier, is like in a holding pattern now where you wait for Cade to get back and you have these things to do over the off season. but you kind of look at the schedule and it's like, well, we still have 50 games left. So that's a lot of season to watch, you know, where you no longer have your best player and, you know, you can just see that people don't really care as much as they used to. So, you know, like, that's part of the job. Like, I'm still having fun with my job. Like, I don't want people to be you know, like, somebody the other week was like, I was doing a mailbag. So I was like, Mari, I feel bad for you because you covered this team and, you know, everybody's tuning out and, and now you're just doing a mailbag because there's nothing to write about. I was like, no, don't, don't pin on me. Like, I'm doing a mailbag because I haven't done one in a while. Like, it's not because, like, you know, I'm defeated. Like, I don't know where that's coming from. Like, I'm, you know, I still love my job and I love covering the team and, you know, most of the interactions on Twitter and all that. But, you know, but it, it is a different team compared to the one we were kind of going into the season with. And, you know, and those things, you know, fans being tuned out of stuff does affect my job in different ways. So that's just been, I think, an unfortunate development this year. Yeah, I was going to put one similar to this. But, yeah, I, I've texted with Wes a little bit like, man, Twitter engagement is down a little bit. And, and it varies from game to game. Sometimes if it's a close game or a win, you'll wake up the next morning and stuff that you tweet out, you know, is blowing up and people are interacting. And for me, and I think you're a little bit of the same way, Omari, it's your job. It's not my job. So it's very different in that way. Like I do this because I love the interaction. I love talking about basketball. I love talking about the Pistons. I have to – purposely not blow your phone up during games. I want to talk to you about what's going on, but I know you have a job to do, but I love just talking Pistons. So my disappointment comes from like, I don't care about the followers or the likes or whatever. Like I just want people to interact with me so we can talk about the team and you can tell like one, they're super jacked about the lions, which is awesome. Like that's cool, but that's where a lot of the focus is. And then this team is bad. So you can definitely tell the engagement is down a little bit. So we need like a a three-game win streak. We need like a Jaden Ivey 40-point game, uh, maybe a Jalen Duran 2020 game, and get that engagement back up. Because there is still a lot to like about this team and, and to watch every week. But that ties in a little bit to me. Like, I don't feel like we've got to see the real team any of the three years that you or I have, quote-unquote, covered this team. Killian got hurt very early in his rookie season, and then it became sell mode. They got rid of Derrick Rose and Blake Griffin, and that roster was just kind of a mess. The next year, Cade started the year injured. Jeremy Grant was injured at a one point. We never really saw the roster for 2021. And then this season, same thing. Even to start the year, Marvin Bagley III, Alec Burks aren't 
healthy. Then Cade gets hurt. Right now, Isaiah Livers is hurt. We've never got to see like the real iteration of any of these teams. And that's something I dislike, especially with this year's team. I don't know how good it would have been, but I wish we would have got to see it at least a little bit altogether. No, it's definitely tough. And we're starting a little run on time. So I would move to my second dislike. And I will say, and I think our dislikes are honestly pretty similar uh, because I think they've just got to have some some glaring ones this year. Uh, a lot of their wins have been shootouts, which, you know, I think it's sort of the, the, the nature of being a bad team. Typically bad teams don't defend well enough to uh, lock other teams down. Uh, like I don't necessarily see that as like an inherent problem to the way they built the, the team or anything this year, but they have been really bad defensively. And I would say to their credit, like they've been bad defensively, but they still kept a lot of games close, right? Like last year they were bad defensively. They're getting blown out because they just didn't have that offensive firepower. Now they do, so they're winning games like 140 to 135, you know. But on the, uh, the flip side of that, you know, sometimes when you lose, it's like 130 to like 110 if you just couldn't hit shots going. So, uh, you know, I think shootouts are fun to watch, but, you know, I think from a, a team standpoint, they definitely need to find a way to make strides on defense, if not this season, certainly going into next season because they're just not going to make that leap next year if they can't defend opposing teams, obviously. Yeah, 100%. I'm in the same boat, and I do want to just reiterate, and I've said it before, I like the scheme change. And for everybody who says they switch everything, they do not switch everything. They almost never switch with their five-man. Now, it does happen at times, but essentially they're switching one through four and then playing drop or ice coverage with the five. I love it, but it has been ugly at times. As much as we've praised Jalen Duran on this episode, and I love him, he hasn't been great playing drop coverage. He gets out of position. He gets his hips turned. I won't get too technical with it, but he does have a lot of room to grow there. So there is some improvement, but I do like that they've gone away from the completely just switch everything scheme, but it would be nice to see some improvements throughout the rest of the season. And then my final one, Omari, this is just kind of like a fun one. Where are all the lobs, man? Like Marvin Bagley came in last year and caught like it seemed a lob or two every single game and I don't know like he's got like one this year they've started to develop a little bit of chemistry with Jalen Duran throwing him some lobs but if there was one like just aesthetic thing I would like to see it would be a, a few more lobs to those two big men I feel like the lobs have increased a little bit over the last couple of weeks so maybe that's just them getting a feel for for Jalen and uh I think honestly getting a feel for the fact that there are very few lobs he can't catch, right? Like as long as you put it up in the general proximity of the room, he will go up and get it. Uh, but yeah, I, mean, I think we have Bagley and you have Duran, and uh, they had like no lob threats for most of the year last year, and then they had one, and now they have two. Uh, they can probably get a little bit more active and you know feed those guys a bit more. So maybe they'll get more into that as the year goes on. But uh, yeah, I mean, lobs are exciting. Lobs are fun. They have the person that would do it. So why not, right? Like maybe, could, maybe we draw up one for Jay Nivey, get Jay Nivey a, a lob or something like that. I, I don't know. Like this is just me. This is the fan in me just like the enjoying those type of plays. I know it's silly and meaningless in the grand scheme of things, but that was just kind of something I threw in there. I think this season, you know, has been a mixed bag so far, uh, you know, but I think, you know, long term, I guess, you know, we have to trade deadline coming up and, you know, some things I can kind of shake things up. So, you know. Maybe some stuff will happen that'll get people back engaged. If nothing else, we could always just run draft content for you know the last two and a half months of the season if all those fails. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's going to be plenty of conversations around Victor, Scoo, and the rest of the draft class. And we may talk a little bit about that next week with Matt Babcock. He's going to talk to us about Jaden Ivey, who he was super high on coming into the draft. Jalen Duran, and then just some GM stuff as somebody that's really familiar with the front office and the inner workings of the NBA. But for today, take it away, my guy. Awesome. Uh, big thanks to our editors, Carrie Jeer II and Robin Chan. 
our executive producer, Anjanette Delgado, and our sports editor, Kirkland Crawford. Also, big thanks, as always, to Wes Davenport. We'll talk to you all next Tuesday.